Welcome to ScotsCast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scots Church, Melbourne. I wonder if anyone here has experienced vertigo. Uh, vertigo is that sensation that you or the environment is moving or spinning within you or around you. I experienced that the night before I was to give uh, an address in Sydney some years ago. In my case, it was an inner ear problem. But at the time, I thought I was having a stroke. I started bumping into the walls and uh, gravitating to the right and gravitating to the left. But thankfully, it resolved within about 24 hours. I think that today's Christian is experiencing something like that. Our place in society has changed and is changing dramatically. And I wonder if your head spins with these changes. For example, according to the latest census, Christians, professing Christians, are now a minority, some 44% of the population. Uh, Our heads are spinning. It was the great Polish sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, who termed the kind of society and era in which we're living liquid modernity. Nothing is solid. All is in flux, including our relationships, our values, institutions, even our sense of identity. That which once we took for granted, we can't take for granted anymore. Once it was taken for granted that Judeo-Christian values were important for a healthy, stable society. As Stephen McAlpine put it in a recent book, There was a time when to be a Christian was to be a good guy. But the good guys, he says, have become the bad guys. Because today some argue that Christianity is an enemy of tolerance, uh, an enemy of uh, sexual pleasure, an enemy of freedom. And then there's the Royal Commission and the stories of appalling abuse in the churches. And so a new question is asked. How safe are the churches? So for me, this raises the question of how are we to live as God's people in such a changing world in liquid modernity? And I wonder if you've asked that question too. How are we to follow Christ in such a world? Friends, I've found answers, I believe, in the Old Testament and in the teaching of Jesus himself. And I want to share them with you this morning. I want to explore these answers and see if you think they help you in your life circumstance. We start with Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament, because I believe that this prophet speaks powerfully to us today, living as we do in Australia's largest city now, Melbourne. 
And I'm thinking particularly of Jeremiah chapter 29 and what was read out to us a moment ago. The first three verses of Jeremiah 29 give us the context of the letter we heard read. So let me read them out to you. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasan, the son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. That letter, it seems, was written about 597 BC. And then the letter itself, let me read it to you again. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in a duetar. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the letters addressed to Jews who'd been carted off to Babylon because the Babylonian army had besieged Jerusalem, the city, and it had surrendered. And thus they had become exiles, relocated to the empire, the centre of which was Babylon. Seek the welfare of that city, that pagan city. That was God's instruction. Seek the welfare of Babylon, Babylon of all cities, the conqueror of Israel. Pray for it. Seek its prosperity. Seek its peace. Live like you're still in Jerusalem. Build houses, farm, marry and have families. But also I might add, the letter goes on to say, there is a hope that this exile would end. For God goes on to say in verse 11, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future to bring you back to the land from which you were taken. Now, one thing we learn from this letter is that God plays a long game. And that's a hard truth, isn't it, in the world of Instagram? You see, a whole generation of these Jews would pass away before that promise was fulfilled. And how hard it must have been for those in exile to believe it to take Jeremiah seriously. Babylon had won. Jerusalem had fallen. 
had not the God of Israel fallen to Marduk, the God of Babylon. What vertigo those Jews must have experienced now they're in a strange land with strange gods, strange customs, and a reputation for brutality. They would have experienced what sociologists call liminality, living in between what was and what is to come, a disorienting context of life. They needed assurance that God had a future for them. And that assurance came through this prophet, Jeremiah. Now, one character who lived out the wisdom of this letter was Daniel. Daniel rose as a Jew to high office in the land of Babylon. He was someone in that role who sought the welfare of the city. He was a man of manifest integrity. Even so, he was targeted by some of his pagan peers. And through the, through the emperor, the, a law was enacted that mandated the worship of that emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, a trap was set for Daniel, but he refused to compromise his faith in the living God. Idolatry had become law, and he'd fallen foul of it. What had happened was what South American theologians call structural evil. And evil had become the law of the land, part of the fabric of society. But Daniel spoke truth to imperial power. As a result, he was thrown to the lions, but God delivered him, as we know from the story. I must say, such an outcome of spectacular deliverance in this life is not guaranteed, as the story of many a Christian martyr then and now shows. Indeed, the story of Jesus. He experienced death on the cross before resurrection from the dead. And there are times in our life when we, we need to remind ourselves of that. But not even death could defeat Jesus let alone social change. You see, friends, the challenge for us, as it was for Jews living in Babylon, it's to live by faith and not by TikTok. So next, let us consider what Jesus has to tell us. As he described something that some scholars call God's new society in the Sermon on the Mount. Because from the perspective of the New Testament, we are in a similar situation to those Jews that Jeremiah wrote to. We're seen on our way to a better country, a better city, a better home. And in that context, which they described as exile, we are to seek the welfare of that city. Remember what was just read to us from the New Testament. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You plural are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You plural are the light of the world. 
A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In these words, we see yet again that Jesus is the master of metaphor. Think about salt. Salt is a preservative. We probably all know that. It prevents decay of meat. I can go down to my local IGA and I can see the salted fish on display and for sale, the counter. And salt can heal. I wonder if you've ever had a sore throat. Well, in our house, out comes the salt and the warm water and the gargling. And note the salt of the earth, not just Israel, the light of the world, not just for Israel. And note too, it's addressed to us. It's not as though you and me as an individual have to carry the weight of all this. We're in this salt and light thing together. And it's all of a piece with how that Gospel of Matthew ends when Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey, amongst other things, what I've commanded you. And that includes what we read, had read out to us about the salt and the light. It's a command to engage our society, not withdraw from it. Let me tell you a story of contrast. There was a figure in church history called Simon Stylites of Syria. He died in 459. At the age of 30, he built a pillar with a platform on it. And over the decades, it got higher and higher and higher because he was withdrawing from society and withdrawing from people so he could pray and meditate. Eventually, 20 metres high. But ironically, poor Simon Stylites became a tourist attraction. I think if he was doing it today, someone would set up a concession stand at the bottom and sell mugs and T-shirts. But salt, if it's to work, needs to be in contact with the meat, with the sore throat, not sitting on the shelf, not on top of a pillar. But it's important, friends, for me to point out this is no mere moralism. This word is addressed to disciples who are already in relationship to Jesus. What we have here, this instruction to be sold in light, is a response ethic, not a ladder ethic, as though we have to climb rung by rung by our good deeds to be in God's good books. It lives out a relationship that God has graciously allowed us to enter into. And as we learn from the wider New Testament, because of Jesus and what he did for us on that cross, dying for the sins of the world, as the Apostle John puts it in his letter, we love because he first loved us. But now we come to the so what question, don't we? It's one thing to explore Bible texts and what they may mean. It's another thing to work out what their significance is for today. So here are some takeaways, I think. 
our prayers are the starting point. Think of our situations in life. Some of us are in positions of great influence in business, in law, in education, in health, for example. Some of us are not. We're homemakers. We're retired. We wrestle with chronic illnesses. Even so, we can pray and in our prayers seek the welfare of the city. We can pray for the opportunity to be salt and light. We can pray for others we know to have the opportunity to be salt and light. As I said, it's addressed to us, not just you, not just me. We're in this together. It may be as simple as a kind word said to another. It may be as simple as an act of generosity, or it may be a rectifying a wrong. And for some of us, it may be improving the policy and practices of an institution that we work in, belong to, that impact people, impact our environment. It means, according to Stephen McAlpine, being the best bad guys we can be. And Christians have done it before. The history of Christianity has lessons to teach us here. You see, Christians have had to cope with being regarded as the bad guys at various times in human history. In the early church, in the context of another great empire, that of Rome, if you confessed that Jesus was your Lord and Saviour, you were deemed a threat to the gods of Rome because those titles, Lord and Saviour, were the titles of Caesar. But something happened in those early years, among which were two plagues. Rodney Stark, the historian, points out that when Christians were considered to be the bad guys, there was a plague from 165 to 180. AD, and another from 251 to 270 AD, it's estimated that these two plagues took out 30% of the population of the empire. If it was Australia today, that's 7 to 8 million Australians. The elites fled Rome for the countryside or other great cities. Who stayed were Christians. And they cared for the sick and dying, even though some of them too perished. And because of that, so many became followers of Jesus. It still happens today. We're living in the States in 2005 when a hurricane hit New Orleans. In Australia, I thought there were two words, New Orleans, but it's New Orleans, I found out. And 1,400 people perished. The damage was estimated to be 145.5 billion US. Now, I was speaking to the leader of the denominations some years after, the Evangelical Free Church of America, a man by the name of Bill Hummel, and he pointed out that in that denomination, it wasn't the only one, congregation after congregation organized teams 
who went to New Orleans to help rebuild it. As a consequence of that discipleship, that love in action, whole new congregations of new Christians sprang into being. As these followers of Jesus sought the welfare of that city. Now, we don't get many hurricanes in Melbourne, do we? But seeking the welfare of the city need not be spectacular. Doesn't need a disaster to be responded to as social scientist Hugh McKay says. Kindness, courtesy, and respect, these three are the great bulwarks against a society's disintegration. Or put positively, simple acts of courtesy, kindness, and generosity are the lubricants of a healthy civil society. Our society needs salt. Our society needs light. Our society needs Christian people who pray for the welfare of the city. It needs Christians who maintain their poise and their composure, even though we feel the vertigo. It means you and me, as followers of Jesus, being the best bad guys we can be. By God's grace. You've been listening to Scott's Cast, the Bible teaching podcast of Scott's Church, Melbourne.